Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Welcome back to GEMCAST. I'm your host, Christina Shenby, and today I am joined by Phil Magidson. Phil is also fellowship trained in geriatric EM, so he's my fellow unicorn. There's only a handful of us, but don't worry, it's not too late. If you're listening, you could still go back and get a geriatric EM fellowship also. Or you could just keep listening to GEMCAST, and we will fill you in on all the important things. Phil is at Johns Hopkins University Medical Center, where he is the Associate Clinical Director in EM, and he also spends some time on the inpatient geriatric consult service. Phil, welcome to GEMCAST. Thanks, Christina. It's great to be here and happy to be happy to be speaking with you about what I think is a really important topic. The topic today is on safe discharges. Why is this important for older adults specifically? Why aren't we just thinking about safe discharges of all patients? Yeah, so older adults are at a much higher risk of complications after an ED visit compared to younger patients. They also have more challenges associated with transitions of care in these patients, again, sort of compared to younger patients. So I think it's important to make sure that we are discharging, that when we're discharging an older adult, that we're particularly deliberate and thoughtful about next steps. But I would say to your point, and we hear this in geriatric emergency medicine, is good geriatric emergency medicine is just good emergency medicine for everyone. So I think much of what we're going to talk about today is relevant to other patients, but when we're thinking about older adults, it's particularly critical or important in this patient population. And you mentioned that older adults are at increased risk of these complications after an ED visit. Can you talk a little bit more about what are those complications so that we can be aware of and thinking of them? Sure. So there's really sort of a handful of things that come to mind. And I think one of the biggest ones is simply just return visits to the emergency departments. So there's studies out there suggesting that upwards of a third of older adults return to the emergency department in relatively short order after sort of that index visit. There are a number of factors associated with short-term returns, including limited social support, isolation, loneliness, polypharmacy, and inability really to sort of complete those follow-up recommendations, to name a few. The other complication really is functional decline is often noted after older adults visit the emergency department. I think we think of this after a hospitalization as well, but it's, it's certainly seen in that acute setting of an emergency department visit. Many older adults have limited functional reserve and after an acute illness or injury, their ability to sort of get back to their previous independent self can really be challenged and further places them at risk of coming back to the ED or even requiring hospitalization. So if an older patient comes in with some condition, pneumonia, UTI, or falls, and they're discharged, that sequelae of the acute illness then places them at greater risk of functional decline. Now that 20 to 30% or up to a third of patients who return to the ED after they are discharged, does that mean we should have admitted them in the first index visit or was there some unmet discharge need that we should could have addressed to prevent that return visit? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think like 
many things probably in medicine and, and certainly in emergency medicine, it, it depends. But based on some of the patient characteristics associated with return visits that we see in the literature, living alone, having cognitive impairment, not having timely follow-up, being confused about discharge instructions, there is likely a good number of these patients who return due to suboptimal discharge planning. And I say that because those characteristics I mentioned, living alone, having some cognitive impairment, are not necessarily medical reasons to admit a patient, but they may be reasons a patient comes back to the emergency department. So I think more work on why these return visits occur is probably warranted to sort of completely answer your question. But I suspect if we sort of tied up those ditch discharges more completely, some of these patients wouldn't need to come back or wouldn't come back. That is always such a tough spot to be in where you have a patient and maybe you try to admit them, but you're told, oh, they don't meet inpatient criteria or they don't meet observation criteria. They're not sick enough with that pneumonia or that UTI, or they're not unsteady enough on their feet to be admitted, but you kind of know they're not going to thrive in the outpatient world, especially if they live alone, social isolation, financial limitations, et cetera, et cetera. That's sure a tough is. spot. Yeah. Maybe we should back up a little bit and we're talking about care transitions here. How do you define or think about specifically care transitions? Yeah, when we when we think of care transitions and when I think of care transitions, I think we really need to think of moving from one sort of unique care setting to another unique care setting. And honestly, in the emergency department, there are probably at least two can two care transitions for every patient we see. So an ED with 50,000 visits a year is probably at least partially responsible for 100,000 care transitions, one into the ED, and then ideally one out of the ED in relatively short order, boarding aside, where many of our patients are sort of getting their entire hospitalization in the ED. But in an ideal world, there's sort of transition out of the ED into some other sort of care setting. And despite that being a large part of our practice, I don't know that we pay as much attention to these transitions as perhaps we should. I, I know that I don't as, as much as I should. What I think is unique about older adults is they really come with the widest array of potential transitions. So many older adults are independent, functional community dwelling patients who come into the emergency department from, from that setting. Many come in from skilled nursing facilities or other short-term rehab facilities, which are again, sort of unique care transitions. And we also see many older adults from long-term care settings that vary in and of themselves. So assisted living facilities that really have a huge variance of what services they can provide, nursing home, long-term care acute hospitals, and many of the, sort of these transitions or these care settings we don't necessarily see in younger patients. So many of these transitions in, particularly from short-term rehab facilities or long-term care facilities, really don't come with great communication. And there's a loss of important information between those two care settings. And some literature suggests up to 85% of the time, something important is not communicated between those, those care settings and during these transitions. And that obviously leads to higher costs, unnecessary treatments, and related morbidity and mortality. And that's something we really need to think about, particularly when we're discharging older adults from the ED back into the community. When I think about all the transitions that we have coming in and out, two other systems-based issues always come up in my mind. And one is that these need to be built before the patient gets there. At 2 a.m., when I am busy running a complete department by myself, I cannot try to set up 
a home health visit or, you know, a follow-up visit, the clinics aren't open at that time. So these systems have to be set up beforehand and it has to be a multi- group team effort with people from all these different stakeholder groups. The second issue from a systems perspective is we need to make the quote right behavior easy. We in our institution have had for a number of years pathways for getting patients to the AFib clinic or getting patients to the DVT clinic for new onset AFib or new DVT or getting patients to the diuresis clinic. But each pathway was completely separate, required different phone numbers, different dot phrases, different contacts. And so it became very unwieldy very quickly. So we are trying to unify all of those pathways, those essentially care transitions, this being from to an outpatient clinic setting. But then the same is true and becomes much more difficult when we're talking about facilities. If you are looking at, well, there's 10 different nursing, skilled nursing facilities just in our small immediate area. How do you then facilitate transitions there or to other clinics or other primary care physicians that may not be on the same electronic medical record system as you. So I think that creating multidisciplinary teams with all the stakeholder groups, setting up the pathways ahead of time, and it needs to be easy because you can't have the ER doc in the middle of the night who's running traumas and codes and strokes and things like that, trying to track down the phone number for the person who's going to help follow up with this patient. Yeah, for sure. Well, if we're thinking about these patients who maybe are not going to thrive in the outpatient setting, is it safer to try to really push or advocate for hospitalization for them instead? Oh, it's it's tempting. It's very tempting. And I know I often have thought that maybe this is just the safest thing to do. And I, I certainly hear it from the house staff. And certainly thinking about arranging discharge, as you, as you described at two in the morning when the department is sort of on fire and you're you know, have multiple traumas coming in can really sort of seem like a daunting task, most certainly. However, reflexive hospitalization is really not the safest thing to do. And and I sort of expand on that by commenting on that older adults really do poorly in the hospital, or or many of them do. Up to 30% of older adults admitted to the hospital are likely to develop delirium, which is associated with negative patient outcomes, in-hospital falls, increased length of stay in the hospital, cognitive and functional decline. And additionally, many older adults, particularly those with some degree of cognitive impairment, who come into the hospital with lower acuity conditions. And so these are sometimes referred to in the literature as ambulatory care sensitive conditions. So lower acuity conditions in patients with some degree of cognitive impairment. Although those patients by far and away are living independent in the community or not institutionalized, up to 86% of these patients when they come into the hospital, only about a third are discharged back to the community with the rest going back to some sort of institutionalized short-term rehab or even long-term care. So older adults really don't do a great job in the hospital. And I think it can sometimes be tempting for the reasons that we've discussed to just reflexively hospitalize them. But I'd encourage everyone to just sort of pause and take that mindful moment because it isn't necessarily the safest thing for the patient or the best thing for the for the healthcare system. It can certainly feel like you're stuck between, you know, the proverbial rock and the hard place where if you discharge the patient, they may not thrive. But if you admit them, now they could 
get delirious. They could have falls, cognitive and functional impairment. And I think this is where in geriatrics, there's a lot more individualized decision-making that is needed. It is Sometimes algorithms are great, but sometimes you really have to delve into, well, what is your social support at home? Who do you have who can help you get your medications, who can drive you to follow up, who can check on you? And those questions are not in any algorithm, but they will potentially make the difference about whether you discharge the patient, understanding the risk that they may need to come back, or whether you admit the patient, understanding the risk that they may have a decline in the hospital. We've talked about delirium before on GEMcast a couple of times. And one of the things that comes up is if we miss the diagnosis of delirium in the ED, then the inpatient team is also more likely to miss it. And how important in my mind, when I admit that patient, I want to make sure I communicate, hey, I'm worried this patient is developing delirium. And I would love to hear your perspective since you are also on the inpatient consult side of why is that so important and how does it play out? Yeah, I think I think it's important for, for a number of reasons, not only from sort of patient-centered reasons, and we sort of highlighted some of the, the morbidity and mortality associated with delirium in the hospital and, and cognitive and functional decline. I think also from a system standpoint, and this is something that we don't necessarily think about in the emergency department, is it really sort of impacts things downstream from what we're doing. So I will occasionally hear, you know, it's fine to think about a prolonged inpatient stay fill, but I'm an ER doctor. And so that's that's sort of an inpatient problem. Why is that something that I need to focus on? And I hear that. And certainly that's not our main focus is what's going on upstairs. But we don't practice in isolation. We don't work in a vacuum. We don't work in silos. And I would give the example of, I think some inpatient providers would say, well, there's boarding in the ED or there's long waiting rooms. That's not my problem. That's the ED's problem. And I think, Christina, you and I as ED physicians would agree that that's a systems problem. And some might even argue not an ED problem at all that we're now responsible for solving. And I think the corollary for that is older adults who become delirious in the hospital or have delirium that is otherwise not identified really does impact what we do sort of back downstream, right? Those beds are now not available, right? As a patient is has a prolonged hospitalization, they're more likely to go to a skilled nursing facility that isn't available, depending on sort of your locale, those beds aren't available. And so the decisions that we make in the emergency department, whether it's identifying delirium or ending up admitting a patient who becomes delirious, who perhaps could have been discharged otherwise, really does impact our practice and impacts the patients and certainly the system as a whole. So it's important to sort of think about the downstream consequences of our actions, even if they're not immediately clear during that ED stay. Yes, boarding has particularly become a problem in so many places. I was emailing with a, another friend who's in geriatric EM, and he was saying in their hospital, they have a boarding unit where they have APPs who are staffed to just round on the boarding patients. And, and like you said, often your entire hospitalization can be physically in the ED. So all this time with patients boarding in a suboptimal environment where maybe there's no closed room, there's constant noise, lights are on all the time, et cetera, there is more chance for them to become delirious or to have decline. 
And it sounds like, you know, discharge is a risk, but hospitalization has its risks. So how do you suggest we approach the disposition of patients, specifically those that we think potentially could be managed in the ambulatory care setting? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, really identifying those patients who are, who are at higher risk. And I think one thing we probably should be doing in the ED more consistently is implementing care processes where we can identify sort of those high risk older adults who are at high risk for a subsequent complication related to a geriatric syndrome. And so this can be tricky, right? There's numerous geriatric syndromes and domains, frailty, cognitive impairment, challenges with social support, caregiver burden polypharmacy, nutritional challenges, functional performance, and even falls. But it, it really is worth sort of thinking about a process for identifying sort of these, these high-risk patients so that we might consider intervening sooner on during that ED visit. And there's a lot of parallels to other conditions where we might identify patients who are high risk for worsening or development of sepsis, maybe the cellulitis in a patient with diabetes and peripheral vascular disease, the same cellulitis in a younger, healthier patient, I might say absolutely some antibiotics and you can go home. Whereas that patient, I'm going to think they're higher risk for developing sepsis or even things like intimate partner violence or suicide assessment risk. We're constantly looking for who are those patients who might be able to go home, but might be higher risk for downstream worsening. Yeah, I, cu I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's a great sort of important parallel. We spend a lot of time in the hospital and particularly in the emergency department, identifying ways to sort of ferret out those higher risk patients. So we spend you know, effort, resources, time finding the best trauma triage process to make sure that our high risk trauma patients get the care, the appropriate consults, interventions sort of right up front. I think sepsis is a great example. I think every hospital and ED probably has some sepsis intervention or initiative, which is appropriate with a really sort of focus on identifying those cases of sepsis early, as we know that early intervention improves downstream morbidity and mortality. Intimate partner violence, as you mentioned, suicidality, right? These are things that we often routinely screen for in the emergency department. And so in thinking about older adults and, and geriatric patients, I think screening for some of these high-risk geriatric syndromes makes a lot of sense and, and parallels some of the things that, that you mentioned. And certainly within the context of our discussion today, can identify some of those patients who are at higher risk of complications after their ED stay. So we can really start early on in the process of making sure that we sort of have a tight plan after that, after that ED visit itself. To screen for something, we have to know the key criteria that are indicators. For example, with sepsis, we used to have a little pop-up that would you know, jump up on our window if they met SERS criteria, and then it was kind of SOFA criteria, and I don't know exactly what we're using now, but we still get, I honestly think it's probably still SERS criteria, but we get pop-ups if, hey, this patient might be septic. But in order to have a pop-up or a screening tool, you have to know the key criteria that go into creating a high-risk phenotype. And we do have that for delirium. We have great screening tools, the DTS, the BCAM, we've talked about that at length on prior GEMCasts that we can use to screen for delirium. But the things that we've been talking about in terms of being high-risk for ED return visits or worsening or functional decline feels still somewhat abstract. And we need, you know, maybe more research is what we need, but we need somehow to bring that into a tool and make it concrete. Are there any tools or algorithms or lists at this point that have been validated? 
Yeah, I wish I could point to sort of a clear, this is the golden geriatric ED screen, which will always identify your high-risk geriatric patient and uh, prescribe the immediate next steps. But unfortunately, that, that doesn't really exist. And, and in reality, screening for various geriatric syndromes often becomes fairly institutional and, and population-specific, perhaps related to the resources you know, a specific ED or health system may have. I think the Geriatric Emergency Department guidelines initially published in 2013 and, and currently sort of in the process of being revamped offer some direction on what the literature has. Additionally, the American College of Emergency Physicians Geriatric Emergency Department Accreditation Program offers some framework for implementing certain screening processes and algorithms, but there really isn't sort of a perfect way to identify that that older adult who's at risk of, of failing discharge from the ED. There are tools to identify the most at-risk potential patients. I'm thinking of the ISAR, the identification of seniors at risk, and then, of course, the delirium screening that I mentioned. But in terms of care transitions and discharge risk, it sounds like there isn't yet a good concrete tool. And maybe that's yeah. an argument, again, for more research in the area. I think it is. I think it is. Well, let's say we've identified a patient at risk, either through ISAR, BCAM, or some other just our gestalt that they're not going to thrive at home. And we're worried specifically about a medication complication, either polypharmacy or somebody whom you've identified as frail, but you also realize there's no acute reason for hospitalization medically at this point. What steps or things should we be thinking about deliberately before we send them out? Yeah, so in, in my mind, there's really sort of four tools or important steps that are important to consider. Again, I think with any discharge of a patient from the emergency department, but particularly important in older adults. And that first is really sort of communicating with the patient. Now, that sounds like something that we would all want to do, right? It's important to communicate with the patient, particularly when you're when you're discharging a patient. But with older adults, it's really important. There's literature out there suggesting that more than half of older adults who are discharged from the emergency department don't understand their expected course of illness or clear return precautions. And that number really increases when we're looking at older adults with some degree of either long-term cognitive impairment like dementia or maybe even some short-term cognitive insult like delirium. And so really making sure that our patients understand those discharge instructions is particularly important. And spending time with that patient at the bedside is really the first and one of the most important steps. The other allies that we have in this setting are also the family members and explaining what we can to the family members. You know, I'll never forget an interaction I had. This was with a family friend who contacted me because she knew I was a physician and she's an intelligent, educated person, but her elderly parent had died of sepsis. And at no point in that ED hospital admission course, all the way to her ultimate demise, did anyone explain, or at least she did not perceive it, what sepsis was. So she was asking me questions like, well, does this increase my risk of getting sepsis? And what is it? And really kind of, a, a again, that lack of understanding of the expected course and what the disease process is and fully realizing, you no, know, maybe someone explained it to her and it just didn't, you know, click because it, there's a lot going on in that moment. But what role can we engage family members in to help with these care transitions? 
Yeah, and I think that's such an important and underrated tool is really that caregiver, uh, that family member. And so I, I, I really think that is sort of that second step in discharge. And I think with visitor restrictions with COVID, we really got away from engaging those family members, those caregivers at the bedside. And I'm not certain that we're sort of back to pre-pandemic engagement of, of these family members, but we it's just so important to create that welcoming environment, to invite the family member sort of back to the bedside, give them a place to sit, really just the availability of a chair to sort of engage them, give them updates, explain things to them, in addition to the patient, for part of the reasons that you just you just described in, in that story. I also think, you know, discharge aside, sometimes those family members or caregivers can provide a lot of information just with the acute visit and just make that visit, you know, addressing sort of the acute underlying reason for the patient being in the emergency department easier for, for us to for us to understand. And when you say engage the caregiver, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean and maybe even some wording of how you would do that at the bedside? Yeah, really sort of, we need to give them sort of specific tools to help them help their loved one and who's ultimately our patient. And so it's one thing just to say, you know, to the adult daughter who's at the bedside, please help your mom out when we discharge her, she'll do better. That's a nice saying, but that really doesn't provide a lot of concrete information that that caregiver can use. So I think something like, your mom is struggling with her medications. In fact, she comes in here today because she had excellently taken a double dose of her diabetes medicine. Here is a pill box that you can take home. Could you come by every Sunday night to refill her medications for the week? That would really help, help her out. And so I think that sort of specific instruction can be particularly helpful. So your uncle Dave can't get to his cardiology appointments, but it's really important that he makes it there. I think seeing his cardiologist will prevent further ED visits. His next appointment is, you know, next Tuesday at 2.30 in the afternoon. Can you make sure he gets to that appointment? And then give them even some additional information. If you can't get him to that appointment, here's our care management team contact information. They can help you reschedule. It's just so important he gets there. I think we see, you know, specific instruction in what we do in the emergency department, right? During a code, if you're leading, if you're the physician leading a code, you don't say to the whole room, all right, let's resuscitate this patient and then stop, right? We all know that we need to resuscitate the patient, but it's important to identify this person will be doing compressions. This person is going to do the airway. This person is gonna be pulling medications. And I think likewise, when it comes to engaging that caregiver at the time of discharge for older adults, those specific instructions really can go a long way. I love the specificity there of, hey, they have an appointment at 2.30 on Tuesday, who can drive them? Or if not, here's the number to reschedule and making it really concrete for them. And if let's say the family or the caregivers are on board, who else should we be helping engage in this process? Sure. So I think another important team to consider that we think about, but I think we could even sort of engage them more than perhaps we do on average is that ambulatory care team. During my training, so I did a, a year of geriatric fellowship, which was a lot of outpatient clin clinic work. And so I had a, a panel of patients and I was never offended when I got a message from the ED of a patient that I saw. It was terrific, right? That warm handoff, you're never going to bother someone with a message about, you know, we saw your patient and we're going to be discharging them. I think that is always well received. And again, I, I think that's important 
to really sort of engage, engage those, those ambulatory uh, partners early on. I did a little bit of work a couple of years ago looking at Medicare claims that showed that older adults who are discharged from the ED who have short-term follow-up with their primary care physician or a subspecialist are less likely to come back to the ED. Maybe we wouldn't think of that as you know, surprising information, but I think that just does reaffirm the importance of connecting those older adults with their ambulatory care teams. Again, I think a specific ask is helpful. So we may include a generic phrase, follow up with your doctor in one to two days without any other context. Maybe that's appropriate and that could be helpful in some situations, but in others, it may not be possible or even necessary. So I think a message, for example, to that ambulatory care team your patient came into the emergency department, they were a little dehydrated, their creatinine was elevated, we're going to be discharging them home. If your clinic can arrange for a follow-up creatinine in three to five days, that would be very helpful, right? That's a specific ask of that ambulatory care team. And honestly, it's probably easier for the outpatient team to arrange an outpatient lab follow-up than for them to see a physician in the next one to two days. And so I think like we do with family members, giving that specific instruction to the outpatient team can be particularly helpful and actually make it easier to sort of adhere to the plan. I like that specificity again. Another key group of team members is our case managers and social work team, who when we're talking about specifically discharge services, say setting up home PT or discharge locations that are not home, such as a nursing facility, they are invaluable partners. Any other thoughts or ways that you engage with them? Yeah, I think that that's a, a really important point. And really, I think kind of the last group and sort of step in that framework of discharging these, these higher risk older adults. And I would even add physical and occupational therapy as, as part of sort of those ancillary services. When I think of nurse case managers and social workers, I'm super lucky in my department. We have a, an outstanding team of nurse case managers and social workers, many of whom have been in, in the emergency department for years. So really understand our workflow and what it means for a successful transition. A lot of success and what's available to, I think, case management and social work teams depends on department practices and resources. And it's important to sort of have that sit down conversation with those stakeholders and identify those processes early on. And I think to your point that you mentioned earlier, you know, we can't be reinventing the wheel every time one of these older adults with a challenging discharge comes up, particularly at two in the morning when the rest of the department, you know, we have, you know, numerous high acuity patients. And so I think it's worth that time ahead of time and sitting down with these, these stakeholders and identifying sort of clear processes for how do we get a patient into a heart failure clinic? How do we make sure that someone can get home physical therapy and whether outlining that, you know, so that can be accessed in real time or just having a clear process where case management and social work can follow up with patients after the fact. And even developing a repository of resources that social work can refer to or refer physicians to and refer the care team to is, is important. I don't know that I would expect every physician caring for you know, a, an older adult in the emergency department to know the phone number for Meals on Wheels, but it's probably important to know where that resource is. And so spending that time up front, again, sort of engaging with care management and social work makes makes a lot of sense in my mind and I think is helpful with these discharges. I'm curious if there's evidence that these services can then reduce 
future ED visits. You mentioned there was evidence for early follow-up with PCP reducing subsequent ED visits. What about all these services? Because in order to get case management or social worker, that costs money. And so from a healthcare system standpoint, we need to show that there's a benefit in terms of outcome or cost savings. Yeah, for sure. And there, there actually is evidence out there in literature to suggest that really engagement of nurse navigators, geriatric nurse navigators, discharge planners in the emergency department does reduce the likelihood of these patients coming back, reduces the likelihood of hospitalization, and shows some degree of money saving, at least at these sites that have done these studies. Again, it's sort of a big lift to get sort of a dedicated geriatric ED nurse discharge coordinator. And so it's, you know, starting with, you know, I think it's probably more likely that most departments have, you know, nurse case managers and social workers dedicated to the entire department. And so starting small and focused on a specific care process or two aimed at older adults, I think is a very reasonable first step. But some of these more robust discharge programs do actually show good, both sort of patient-centered and, and healthcare-centered outcomes that, that are favorable. We have at our institution a medical admitting officer who triages the admissions, decides what team they go to, coordinates that. And I've been advocating for a long time for a medical discharge officer who could be a nurse or a social worker or something, but who kind of makes all of that happen because in our increasingly complex healthcare world, it isn't something that a physician can do, especially in the middle of the night. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really good point. It's interesting you bring that up. We have medication review technicians that look at medications of patients. But again, a lot of that is sort of hospital facing, right? So they review the medications of patients who are being admitted to the hospital. I've always argued that, sure, it's important to review those medications, but how about those patients going home? Those are the medications that we really need to review, right? The patients coming in, it's important to know what medications they're on. They're going to have a whole fleet of physicians and residents and interns and medical students looking at stuff. Those poor patients going home are maybe going to have an overworked ED physician trying to, to reconcile those medications. So I, I think that's interesting. I like your idea of that discharge officer as well. It makes makes a lot of sense. Well, it sounds like the my take-homes from this session are... First of all, discharges, any transition of care can be a risky situation. If they go home, in, for some older patients, there's 30% chance of having to return to the ED or be hospitalized. Doesn't necessarily mean that that was a, quote, miss, that they should have been hospitalized in the first place. We can't necessarily predict who in that population will worsen, will deteriorate, or will have functional medical or social decline. It's also risky to admit the patient. They can develop delirium, functional decline, falls in the hospital, and can often lose independence after that acute hospitalization. The best that we have so far, there's no one screening tool or algorithm that can identify with you know, great sensitivity or specificity our highest risk patients, but using some of the tools that we have already, such as the ISAR, the screen for seniors at risk, or at least delirium screening, and then thinking about, just like we do for other conditions, cellulitis, who's going to get worse, who is probably going to be fine to go home. Thinking about who's at high risk for functional medical decline, and then being more thoughtful about engaging the patient, engaging the family members, engaging the PCP, always with very specific rather than more general asks. And then coordinating with our social worker or case management or geriatric nurse team to help 
setting up home services. And this is all very context dependent. You know, a busy academic ED is going to have very different resources from a small standalone or, you know, freestanding ED. And so we have to work within the resources that we have, but at least one thing I do is often engage with a patient and say, hey, I really want to make sure that you see your doctor in the next two to three days. Can you call their office on Monday and set up an appointment for their next available? And if you're feeling great, then you don't need to you know, follow up, but that way you at least have it on the books or you know, to recheck your wound or to recheck your creatinine or whatever specific reason it is, not just a general follow-up with your doctor because it's a nice thing to do. <laughs> but what is the reason? What should they be watching for? Any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with? Well, I think that that's a great summary, Christine, and thanks again for having me to, to talk about this topic. I, I think, you know, discharging older adults can seem impossible, but, but it really isn't. And with, you know, a national boarding crisis and continued focus on providing high value care, it's really important to, to hone your skills when it comes to discharging older adults and doing so safely. And, and really, that's one of the things that I love about geriatric emergency medicine. I think there's a lot of medical considerations in caring for these complex older adult patients, but there's also health systems and really sort of patient-centered things to consider that we really need to consider for all patients, but I think is particularly important in older adults. And when done well, really sort of places them at a place for, for great success and is quite rewarding. So thanks again for having me. Thanks, Phil. And thank you for listening to GEMcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of GEMcast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GEMpodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.